Uh, listen, y'all, we made it for, uh, for like three services. I've watched Pastor Mike dance around. I've feared a hamstring. But we, we did it, man. We did it, and I'm down with it. I'm happy about it. Yes. Um, good morning, church. Uh, what a good day. Three baptisms today. Super pumped about that. I don't know if you guys were listening and paying attention, but if you were, uh, you heard Alexa talk about uh, just like her experience on one of our student retreats and how in that moment God, God used that to change her heart. Uh, and I bring that up because right now our student ministry is uh, doing a fundraiser for, for retreat. Uh, we're selling barbecue tickets uh, in the resource room every day. So I uh, would love for you guys to help us out, help send these students to things like retreat, to things like uh, camp. Uh, I am shamelessly plugging this right now um, and, and encouraging you to do that. Uh, if you guys will, uh, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Psalm 73. Psalm 73, if you brought your Bible. Uh, and get there, and I'm going to tell you a story that I stole from a guy named Tony Evans. Um, and it goes like this. One day, two monks were walking through the countryside They were on their way to another village to help bring in the crops for the harvest. And as they walked, they saw this old woman sitting by a river. She was upset. There's no bridge there. She couldn't get across the river. And the first monk kindly offered to her, well, we'll carry you across if if you'd like. Thank you. She was so grateful. She accepted their help. So the two men, they, they joined hands together. They lifted her up. They carried her across the river. They set her down on the other side, and she went on her way. After they had walked another mile mile or so, the second monk began to complain. He said, man, look at my monk robes. They're all wet and dirty because we had to carry that old woman across the river. And my back, my back's starting to hurt. Like right here, it's getting real stiff. And the first monk just kind of looked at him, smiled, and, and nodded. And they kept going on their way. A few more miles up the road, the second monk began to whine some more. My back is hurting me so badly, and it's all because we had to carry that woman across the river. I cannot go any farther because of the pain, and he sat down on the ground. And the first monk looked at him and asked, have you wondered why I'm not complaining? Your back hurts because you're still carrying the woman. I set her down five miles ago. Some of us, church, we're like this monk with an aching back. We're carrying things that people have done to us from the past that keep causing us pain. Today's sermon is titled, For the Moments I Feel Bitter. For the Moments I Feel Bitter. Past three weeks, we've been in the Psalms. Uh, We've been looking at a psalm. We've been relating it to some emotion or feeling that we all experience as humans, and then we're seeing how we should biblically respond to whatever that emotion is. We've approached it with this main idea. God's word is our way to rightly deal with the emotions of life. We said we need to choose, like make an active choice to meditate on God's word instead of allowing different thoughts from the world, Satan, and our own flesh to always flood our mind. We need to use this as a foundation for truth. It is there for us as a weapon in battle. So today we're going to be in Psalm 73. It's a long psalm. It's like 28 verses. 
All right, uh, but I want to read the whole thing before we break it down. It only takes like two minutes, 38 seconds. Okay, I timed it. Here we go. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts to the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Yes, okay, super long psalm. uh, But we will get through this in a semi-timely manner. Thank you, 11 o'clock service with no end. I'm kidding, don't be scared. It's all good, okay? Uh, I want to bring your attention first to two central verses in this text, verses 16 and 17, all right? It says, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. These are going to kind of play into the whole message, but right here, this is the turning point of this psalm. Before he gets here, he's describing his bitterness, but right here, this, these two verses, these make a difference for him. He's tried to understand why he's bitter. It's wearisome for him. It's exhausting to him. It has not gone well for him. And so he turns to God. He goes to worship. He goes to the sanctuary. He purposefully, with intent, looks to God's word. He chooses to meditate on that truth. And then he understands. Then his feeling is brought under control. Then it starts to become better. What happens for him? His way out of bitterness is that he looks at it from God's perspective. He looks at it from God's perspective. Here's our main idea, church. Bitterness is changed when I look at things from God's perspective. Bitterness is changed 
when I look at things from God's perspective. But let's go ahead and back up, okay? That's verses 16 and 17. We got 15 verses before there. Where does bitterness start? Bitterness begins when I feel wronged. Bitterness begins when I feel wrong. Verses 1 through 15 sort of encapsulate this idea for us. In verse 1, the writer, he kind of almost gives us a title for this psalm. Uh, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. It's kind of, it's a bit of a summary. It gives us a glimpse into the viewpoint of which he's trying to approach his life. The psalmist recognizes, God, you are good, even though I don't always feel like it. You are good to those who are truly your people. You're good to those who are loyal to you, pure in heart. Pure in heart does not mean without sin. It means loyal to and following God. The psalmist identifies himself as one of these people who are loyal to God. But the psalmist has a struggle and he expresses that struggle for like 14 verses here, right? The writer looked around him and saw that everyone not following God was doing just fine. And he felt jealous of their condition. He observed that they had it better than he had it. Now, some of his feelings were clearly exaggerated to think that they had no trouble until they died, that they were all healthy and wealthy, that they never wanted for anything. There's some exaggeration there. He saw them mock God and live just fine, and it made him think, it's been completely pointless to follow you, God. Why be loyal to you, God? What is it even worth if the wicked prosper and I don't? Do you even see me from heaven, God? He was growing bitter. He felt wronged. In this case, he felt wronged by God. He felt as though he deserved to have it easier, to have what he saw as good that the wicked had, but he didn't. What he was responding to was a perceived injustice on God's part. He felt like what was happening to him wasn't fair. He felt wronged. This right here, church, this is where the heart of bitterness grows out of. Here's the definition. It's continual unforgiveness when I feel wronged, hurt, or mistreated. Continual unforgiveness when I feel wronged, hurt, or mistreated. Now, some of us, we're like this writer. We do feel bitter towards God. We feel that something that he is allowing in our life or that he has allowed to happen to us is unfair. We feel wrong. We feel hurt. We feel mistreated by God. Some of us are bitter towards other people. They didn't treat us well. They were mean to us. They broke our trust. Any situation where I have the feeling that I have been wronged, hurt, or mistreated can grow into bitterness. Whether it's legitimate or not, it can lead to bitterness. We feel wronged. We feel like some level of injustice has occurred against us. And then we sit in it. We dwell in it. We think about it. It possesses our thoughts. And we hold on to these things. And we're just like that second monk. We're unwilling to set the old woman down. Now, I don't want to trivialize any of this, church. Because some people have been wronged and hurt by others in very bad ways. I don't need to be explicit about what that means. What I hope, though, is that as we've talked about where bitterness grows out of, that we could all think of something in some way in our life where we are holding on to some type of unforgiveness and bitterness towards another person. 
Proverbs 14.10 says, The heart knows its own bitterness. It knows. We know. Right? Even if the, most, uh, the worst imaginable things have been done to us, we still don't want to hold on to a spirit of bitterness, resentment, anger, or hatred. It's not going to help us. It's only going to hurt us. And church, if you are bitter towards someone, you are sinning. You are sinning if you sit in that bitterness. You're holding on to and you're walking in a pattern of sin and it's going to rob you of the joy of God's salvation. We don't want that. Now listen to me carefully, right? Not being bitter does not necessarily mean restoring a relationship. Forgiveness is not always going back into something that is damaging to you. I will, I'll come back to this later. But what hopefully we have now, we see where bitterness begins. We feel like we have been wronged. Now what do we do? We look at things from God's perspective. Bitterness is changed when I look at things from God's perspective. That's what the psalmist did. He got out of his own way of thinking. He went to God. He went to the sanctuary. He's taking action. He's not staying dormant and sitting in it. He's choosing to worship even in his feelings. And he's reminded of some things. Now church, as I said the last two weeks, we take on this mindset. We put ourselves into action. We go into the sanctuary of God as we choose to meditate on God's word. So I know if you've been here the past two weeks, you've picked a verse from the text. You've written it down and you've purposely been meditating on that verse, right? Yeah, walk around this again. Right? Okay, good. I'm glad to hear that. It doesn't have to stop here. As the psalmist looked at the things from God's perspective, he was reminded of some things. Bitterness is us trying to carry out God's justice. Bitterness is us, you and me, trying to carry out God's justice. This is verses 18 through 20 here. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. The psalmist here is talking about how God deals with the wicked. Initially, he's looking at things from his perspective. He had begun to doubt the goodness of God. He thought, man, what I'm seeing is not okay. It's not just. It's not right. It's not fair. God, where are you in this? Yet as he looked at it from God's perspective, he remembered God is just. God is just. There's so many scriptures that we can grab about God's justice and how he is just. I picked one from the Psalms because it felt appropriate. Psalm 33, 5. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. I love this verse because note, his love and his justice go hand in hand. They're not two separate things. Sometimes we like to think about God. There's like the just God and then there's the loving God. No, 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 no. These things go hand in hand. God actually shows love in his justice. Let's, let's dish on justice for a bit. God is just. In other words, God will not let wrong go unpunished. God will not let sin go 
unpunished. If God let wrong things happen without punishing the wrong thing, God would not be good. God would not be loving. But bitterness, bitterness is trying to bring justice to what only God can bring justice to. Bitterness is trying to bring justice to what only God can bring justice to. And the psalmist remembers this about God. He remembers God is just. And he uses this vivid language about the end of the wicked. What the psalmist is saying in these verses is when God enacts justice, it is as though the wicked are not. God will put an end to wickedness and the wicked, to unrighteousness and the unrighteous, to sinfulness and the sinner. Like when I wake up from a dream and that dream quickly fades from my memory, so will be the wicked, so will be the hurt, so will be the wrong, so will be the mistreatment. But for our own struggles with bitterness, we need to remember it's God who takes care of wrongs. It's God who does it. Romans 12, 19, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Church, this is freedom. This is, it's not on you. You don't have to right wrongs. It's not on you. It's God's responsibility. Trust him in it. Now listen, this is what I'm not saying. I'm not saying there are not cases, situations where we do not involve the police, the law, some other government institution. The Bible is very clear that God uses governments to punish wrongdoing. Romans 13, right? I'm talking about our own carrying of bitterness, right? Desiring earthly justice for what is clearly evil is different than my own individual bitterness towards somebody and desiring to see their demise. If someone needs to go to jail, they need to go to jail, right? But it's still wrong for me to just want for and meditate on and think about all the time their ultimate destruction. I need to remember that all wrongs are brought to justice by God. All wrongs are brought to justice by God. How does he do that? How does God justify what is wrong, what is sin, what is bad, what is evil? One of two ways. He either pours out the wrath of his justice on Jesus at the cross, or he pours out the wrath of his justice in hell. Either way, it's justified. Either way, wrong is punished. All sin against me is justified on the cross or through hell. All of my sin, praise God, is justified on the cross. And if not on the cross, the scary thought is it would have to be justified in hell. God will not let wrong persist. God is just. When I am bitter, I'm trying to bring my own wrath onto someone for the wrong they have done to me. I'm trying to bring justice to what only God can bring justice to. And this writer, because he's viewed things from God's perspective, he recognizes the impact that bitterness has had on him. Bitterness hurts me more than the other person. Verses 21 and 22. Bitterness hurts me more than the other person. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. He's acknowledging what it feels like to be bitter. 
It's a weight on the soul. It impacts who I am as we defined soul last week, like who I am encompassing my needs and desires. It's damaging to the body. It affects my health to be bitter. It balls me up in stress as I replay the moment of hurt, as I think on it constantly, as I talk about it with others, as I consider how that person might hurt me again over and over. This is always playing out in my mind. It in turn affects my relationship with God because in essence, I'm doubting his justice to some degree and I'm trying to fulfill his role. It robs me of the joy of salvation. It's stealing that from me. But interestingly enough, my bitterness rarely has much effect on the person I am bitter towards. To some extent, when I'm bitter, I'm, I'm hoping for bad to come to them. I'm hoping for bad to come to them. Think about this. I'm wanting that person to be wronged, hurt, or mistreated, which is kind of ironic. In my bitterness, I'm wanting the thing that I am upset about to happen to them. That's not love, right? We're, we're Christian. We're supposed to be all about love. Love. That's not love. That's not love. Jesus said this in Matthew 5, 44, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Love the one you're bitter towards. Pray for the person that you're bitter towards. But I don't want to, Jesus. I don't like that, Jesus. No, thank you. Thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross for my sin. I know that I've said you're Lord of my life. Hard pass on your commands. So as I let bitterness fester in me, it just hurts me. And not just me. It hurts the church, too. Bitterness is a poison to the body of believers. When we, when we think about the word bitter, we think about like a taste, okay? When the Hebrew people thought bitter, it was a, a bitter plant, a poisonous plant. Not just a taste thing. I'm talking like a deadly thing, a thing that would kill you. That's how they saw bitterness. Verse 15 said this, if I had said I will speak thus, right, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. He's looking at all the bitterness he was feeling, and he's saying, man, if I had given rise to that, if I had given articulation to that, if I had went and talked to all these other people about how this person wronged me and hurt me and gossip, 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 it's as though I have betrayed your children. I have betrayed your church. God, I betrayed you. I betrayed the bride of Christ. I betrayed the thing that you love. Bitterness between brothers and sisters in Christ is ruinous to the church. It is destructive. It is distracting. Stop it. All right. It is betrayal of our relationship with each other. It's poison. Poison. Bitterness hurts me. Bitterness hurts my church. I have to instead see it from God's perspective. I got to put that on. I got to think in those ways. Bitterness is wiped away by coming to God. Verses 23 and 28, or through 28. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward, you will receive me to glory. 
Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who's unfaithful to you. But for me, it's good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Right there, there's some strong verses to meditate on this week. There's, a, there's some good verses to write down and look at and repeat over and over and over in my mind. I see these closing verses as like this meditation on the joy of God's salvation. I said it earlier, bitterness is sin. Bitterness is sin, but God forgives sin. God forgives sin, church. God changes the sinner. When we go to him, if we see him rightly, we find that what we have in God far outweighs the hurt that people have caused us. Now remember the context of this passage, okay? In this passage, he's felt bitter towards God. And some of us may be there. We may ask God, God, why do you allow so much injustice on earth? God, why have you, God, allowed people to to hurt me? Well, that's like a whole sermon series that Pastor Ed can preach when he gets back, all right? But let me give you like my cliff note answer to why. Okay? My, my big answer to why evil is allowed to persist is because God is not done saving people yet. God is not done saving people yet. 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So what this person does, they go deep into reminding themselves of their salvation and all the benefits with their salvation, the joy of their salvation, what they have in God. He is purposefully, he is intentionally turning away from being bitter. He's reminding himself of who God is. He's reminding himself of his relationship with him. He is ruminating, meditating on his salvation. And this is how he does it, all right? I'm going to sit down with y'all. I'm going I'm I'm to pull up close here, okay? This is it. He meditates, guys, on the fact that God is with him. Verse 23, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. God is with him. Christian, God has put the Holy, his spirit in you. Always. Always with you. That is, that is good news. I have God with me continually in anything. The spirit of God has made his home inside of me. God is with me. He meditates on the fact that God guides him through his word. Verse 24, you guide me with your counsel. God has given me all I need as the Bible claims about itself for life and godliness. All I need for life and godliness right here in God's word for me. God guides me through his word. God gives him He meditates on the fact that God has given him eternal life. Verse 24. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. I'm secured for eternity. I have 80 to 100 or so odd years on this earth. My eternity is secured. When I die, heaven is my home. I have a resurrection of a new body to look forward to. I have God forever and his people forever. God gives them eternal life. 
God advocates for him. Verse 25, whom have I in heaven but you? My sin's been forgiven by Jesus, but even though I keep on sinning, Jesus keeps on standing there and say, God, that's your child. Father, that's your child. That is your child. Advocates for me. God gives me strength. Verse 26, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever, even though my flesh is weak. Even though I struggle, even though, yep, you know what, I am bitter. Oh, I have God. And with the power of God, I can do it. I can forgive. God give him, gives him purpose. Verse 28, but for me, it's good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I, here's the key, that I may tell of all your works. My new focus is a Christian. It's God's glory. It's not my, it's not my own glory. It's God's glory. Whatever hurt, whatever wrong, whatever mistreatment I have is redeemed by God for his purposes. Meditate on your salvation. God's salvation far outweighs how I've been wronged, hurt, or mistreated. If I want to get out of bitterness, church, if I want to get out of bitterness, I need to see the situation from God's perspective. Now, really quick, what can I do practically to change, all right? Four practical things as we wrap. What's my response? First thing, own my sin. Own my sin. Repent and confess. Confess and repent. Wait a minute. Somebody sinned against me. Yes, maybe so, but you're still responsible for your sin. And bitterness is sin. The psalmist is writing this. He's recognizing his wrong. In verse 2, he said, My feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. He's not affirming his sin. He is rebuking it. Own my sin. I need to recognize it's wrong to be bitter. If I do not think it's sin, how can I be forgiven of it? Matthew 7, 5, Take the log out of my own eye, right, before I can see the speck in my brother's eye. Second thing, evaluate how... Emphasis on how I've been wrong. Am I bitter over someone sinning against me? Has someone really harmed me in some way, or do I just not like what happened? I think a good evaluator of this is, would God be angry about what has happened? What I've noticed is that we have very large extremes of bitterness. And sometimes our bitterness is petty, right? There are situations of of real safety concerns where a person has or has tried to harm us in physical ways, or continual emotional abuse, or has lived in such a reckless manner as to bring us harm, right? Way up here. Or we may just be petty having taken minor offenses to the extreme. They didn't come to my kid's party. She didn't like my Facebook post. He didn't say hi to me. I wish that wasn't real, but it is. And honestly, It's time to let that go. But there are situations where real sin has occurred, and I have to lean on God's justice as my comfort. Third thing, adopt an attitude of forgiveness. Even if that person never says sorry, I can still have an attitude of forgiveness. I can live my life without being ruled by bitterness. Okay, Bitterness rules your life when... That person who you're bitter towards literally has no effect on your well-being at all. And yet somehow they're in your head. And you're thinking about them all the time. And you're talking about them all the time. And you're bitter towards them. And it's ruling your life. In a way, this will scare you, they've become your God. This person you're bitter towards. 
They're ruling your life in some crazy way. How can I adopt an attitude of forgiveness towards these people? Well, I'm going to meditate on the fact that God has forgiven me of much more. To not forgive them is to spite God's forgiveness of me. Being bitter is a heart of unforgiveness, yet God has forgiven each one of us for sin against him. If we rightly, church, see our own sin and we rightly understand how much we have been forgiven, to not forgive makes no sense for the Christian. Makes no sense for the Christian. In some cases, we need to go to that person and talk to them and work it out so we can get to an attitude of forgiveness. Colossians 3.13, if one has a complaint against another, forgiven each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive, must forgive, must. Last thing for replace bitterness with kindness. You want to really change you have to do the opposite of what you feel sometimes. Now, Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, he gives us like this pattern of getting rid of, of past sins and, and replacing them with righteous living. Uh, we call it put off and put on, right? I need to put off my bitterness. I need to put on in its place kindness. Ephesians 4, 31, 32. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. I grant you this church, there may be instances where relationships are beyond repair. Again, I'm not telling you go back into a situation that would not be safe. We need to be wise in this. If a persistent sin is continuing to happen, you don't have to enter back into that relationship, but you can still live with the attitude of forgiveness, letting go of bitterness, not being ruled by it, you can still be kind by not talking about it with everybody. But that aside, listen, I want us to see where the gospel meets me at my bitterness, where what Jesus has done on the cross has paid for my own sins and the sins against me. I don't have to worry about punishing anyone else. I don't have to worry about righting wrongs anymore. God's in control of that. Hopefully the increase of my love for him allows me to forgive. I want you to see that the gospel is necessary for this. Guys, these are hard things. It's hard to forgive. It's hard to forgive. So hard is it to forgive that God sent his like only son to die so that forgiveness could be possible. That wasn't like an easy peasy thing. That was massive. God gave his life for it, for forgiveness. He gave his life for you to forgive you. The Bible is so clear. You also must forgive. Maybe you don't have a relationship with the Heavenly Father. You can through Jesus Christ. The Bible says if we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord, believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we can be saved. Oh, I hope that if that is what you need today, that you'll come running to Jesus Christ today. Maybe you know right now you're thinking of a person that you're bitter towards. Don't walk out of this room and let that heart just ice over, all right? Let's take care of it. Let's confess and repent of it today. Let's articulate it to God first. Their name, the what, everything. If you need to confess it to somebody else, then come confess it to somebody else, somebody you trust, okay? If you need to go to that person for restoration, you need to do that too, 
all right? Hard things, Jesus makes it possible. The crosses are always there to put prayer requests on. We do look at them and pray for them every week. There is a prayer team in the back that is waiting to pray for you. You do what God leads you to do. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you that we could be in your house today. We can see baptism. We can see life change. We can celebrate the song and in your word. God, I don't want it to end here. I don't want us to just walk out and let this all pass out of our mind, doing nothing about it. Convict hearts, Father, as only you can. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.